coming back to the software vendor and saying, it's your fault. It's because of your insecure or unsecured or badly thought out platform that I have had this, you know, data breach. You're listening to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Saeem, welcome to the show. It's so interesting to have you on the show because I've actually known you for a while, like back in the day, content security days. I think I met you, this has gone back a fair few years now, um, and you've done so many things since then in a good way in terms of your career, what you've done, companies you've you've built. So I've definitely wanted to get you on the show for a while uh, to talk about some of your journey and what you're sort of doing now. So if you wouldn't mind, please um, talk to us. Like, where did your journey sort of start in security and what are you sort of doing now? Hey, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. And yeah, it's, you know, we've, we've known each other a while. So it's, uh, it's always interesting to get into a podcast with someone who's your friend. So cool. But look, uh, answering your question, um, I've, I'm a software engineer and project manager, if you look at you know purely training and qualification perspective. But for the last 12 years, I've been working in cybersecurity. And before that, I was a technology consultant for about six, seven years. And I started off my career as a, as a software developer. So in terms of my security journey, over the last uh, 10, 11 years, I've worked purely on the consulting side. And a lot of my work has been about helping companies create and execute cybersecurity strategies, cybersecurity programs. And the focus from my side has always been, you know, helping them scale up or grow their business or get more customers. So it's almost, look, I'm an outsider. If you think about it from the typical security perspective, um, you know, I've, I've, I've not started my career as a pen tester. Uh, you know, I came from a software development and, and, and a uh, technology management, technology implementation background. So, you know, not in the cybersecurity weeds to start from, so so to speak. But look, for the last uh, year or so, I've been I've been working on a startup called Jumpstart Security, and the whole idea has been that after working with so many larger businesses uh, as a consultant, I wanted to do something to work with uh, smaller businesses to help address their cybersecurity problems. So that's that's what I'm currently doing, and uh, I still do some consulting work. Uh, you know, old habits die hard, if you will. But that's 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 really an area of interest for me on you know helping businesses use cybersecurity more as a business enabler and a differentiator rather than oh we need to implement something in cybersecurity just because it's important. So yeah, that's a little bit about me, what I've been doing, what I'm doing right now. Awesome. Well, I mean, I have to. I have to say, I would say most people probably are an outsider in security because, I mean, everyone started from somewhere, right? So, I mean, a lot of people have previously been in technology myself and then moved into security. So you're not alone on that front. Uh, But talk to me a little bit more about the consulting side of it. Now, what have you sort of seen transition a lot over the years? Because, I mean, even when we spoke a few weeks back talking around like the old days on things and how companies are engaging with a traditional cybersecurity MSSP provider or something like something of that nature, but how people are sort of changing their mindset towards a consulting model. I'm really keen to get your thoughts on that because I think people are less 
reluctant perhaps or they don't want to do the day rate consulting as much as probably historically because of COVID, you know, you can't get people on site as much as you used to. So Mm -hmm. what have you sort of seen in terms of the transition in your years and even probably in the most recent two years? Well, there, 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 there are two macro trends to talk about here. First of all is what you were just talking about, which is you know the commercial engagement side of things. Previously, you would engage a consultant who'd give you a daily rate. They'd come in and scope out a project. They'd come and do the project and you pay them their money and off they go, right? Whether it was an independent consultant or through a consulting company. That's changing quite a bit now in my in my opinion and in, in what I observe in the marketplace is because cybersecurity, and this kind of leads into the second macro trend, um, and that is organizations are no longer viewing cybersecurity as a isolated or a separate issue. It's made its way into everything. So the second macro trend that I'm seeing is it doesn't matter what you sell now. What you're actually selling is trust. So you need cybersecurity to help secure and build assurance around that. So the major change that's happening now is companies are looking for ongoing advice. And it's not a, it's not something typically that can be done by an MSSP, which will just, let's say, monitor a core part of your infrastructure. They want ongoing advice, quite similar to the way lawyers work, quite similar to the way other advisory professionals work. And that's where I see a lot of consulting going. To put it in perspective, over the last two years, all of the engagements that I have done have been less about just ticking a box in terms of compliance, but thinking more about how can we use this thing called cybersecurity, how to grow our business and attract more customers. So cybersecurity is now becoming more of a business enabler, and therefore the commercial model is changing. You no longer can just bring in people to do a you know 10-day, 15-day, 20-day, 30-day contract and you know treat that in isolation. It's now become an ongoing uh, an ongoing thing. Second, uh, I guess, supporting fact that is context is so important. So people want to work with consultants who've actually spent time understanding their business so they can give them more bespoke or tailored advice rather than saying, let's say the ISO standard says X, Y, and Z, so you should go do this. It's, it's, it's always, for me personally, it's always been more than that. It's about saying the standard says this, and this is how you should implement it in your business because it's going to help your business grow as well. So I'm I'm seeing a lot of consultants change their approach towards uh, providing services to their clients. And the commercial model is also changing from that fixed scope to an ongoing retainer. And that's what I've done for the last uh, few years as well. Build up the uh, consulting practice based on uh, a retainer, knowing that there's a fixed cost to make sure that you always have access to someone. And it actually works really well for a business owner or a management team of a business because they know that their cybersecurity advisory piece is a fixed cost where they can consume what they need when they need. So that's that's the major trend that I've seen. So do you think that your traditional day rate consultants, 10 consultants out on site, will that sort of just be abolished in the future? Because one, it is quite costly. Uh, two... You know, you're sort of change. You you were just saying that people are changing the way they look at security. They want this ongoing advice, a retainer. They probably pay for. You know, do they pay for outcomes, or is it an outcome mixed with you get three hours of my time per month? Like, is that sort of how it's structured? 
that is one of the ways it is structured, definitely. But I personally don't subscribe to that view because it's still just a it's a switcheroo of 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 the old you know X hours consulting work, right? So, look to answer your first question, I believe that the old traditional model of you know X number of resources that's not going to go anytime soon because the, at the larger end of town for larger organizations that is predominantly the way that they would look at working because they want to have augmented capability and they will be you know it, it makes sense for them in the way that their projects and run, are run or changes are run to have those augmented resources come on do a specific job and then move but for so, the large so sorry i'm sorry to jump in there do you think now i think i know the answer to this but i'm gonna ask you anyway large enterprises which i've worked in they're buying manpower is that what they're buying they're buying like cool I want 50 dudes on site next week. You can deploy that quickly. It's pretty hard to get that potentially from a boutique consulting firm. They might not, you know, that they might not have 50 people. Is that sort of the thinking behind it? Like I just need to execute this project now because my CEO's arcing up about something that I haven't done or some regulator is and I need it done. These guys can give me consultants very quickly. Yes, exactly right. Um, and that and that is that is the approach that you would see you know, take place with, with with a lot of large enterprise companies. They need a specific skill set. This is why the whole, I call it fallacy of the shortage of cybersecurity skills comes into play because you have all of these, uh, you know, resource requirements flooding the market saying we need 10 pen testers or we need uh, three GRC specialists who are able to help us set up our RSA Archer instance. So we need another skill set for IAM, let's say. Those are, you know, still looking at modern problems from a, you know, classic perspective saying that if we throw more people at this, it'll solve the problem. That's not the that's not the solution anymore because problems are becoming more complex and problems are expanding beyond the typical remit of IT. This is why the rise of the bespoke consultant is so evident because you need someone who works in a specialized niche but can understand the business context much better than before. I mean, think about it this way. Cybersecurity technical skill sets are almost being treated like a commodity saying, I need 10 masons to come and help me build uh, and finish up this house. If 10 consultants take five days, if I get 20 consultants, I could do it in two and a half. That approach no longer works. You need to come and think about why am I building why am I building this dwelling because do I actually need a dwelling or do I just need a temporary accommodation which I can use on a flexible basis so models are being flipped on their heads covid's forced everyone to accept if they if they had any kind of push they've now had to accept that a hybrid remote way of working is the norm now you don't need to be physically present at a location and things that are happening in the digital space from uh, you know, deperimeterizing per, de the, you know, typical network is also contributing to that. So therefore, the whole concept of that classic consultant working on a fixed scope flies out the window. You need someone who can actually think about a number of things and can pull in the expertise where they require. I'll give you an example, which is not related to cyber. I'm looking, I was looking for legal advisory for my business and instead of going down to a legal advisor who specializes in only one type of law 
I've been talking to organizations which now provide a suite of different law uh, or legal related services, and they charge a fixed retainer as well. So that model works because they get commercial cover that they can bank on a customer paying them a fixed revenue. And for the customer, it works because they're paying a fixed cost, but getting access to a plethora of talent and plethora of expertise as and when they need it. So I believe this is the this is the better way to go forward. And I've found immense success when I've used this approach in my consulting business. So would you say that was sort of the genesis to how you birthed Jumpstart Security? Because you've obviously, you've worked in the space, you've worked in the consulting game, you understand it, but you sort of saw that there was a gap in the market because, I mean, a lot of the companies that you're sort of appealing to they don't need to go to some full-blown company to get some security stuff. One, they can't afford it. Two, it's overkill. They don't need it. Let's be realistic here. You only, like you were saying with the law example, right? Or else you would have to go to every single specialized law um, company to get that advice and you probably don't need it. But if you can pay someone to give you that overall, hey, we're going to charge you a thousand bucks a month or 500 bucks a month, but you get it all, that's way more appetizing because you're not at that stage where you require heavy heavy loaded duties sort of stuff from these from these legal guys would you say that's a fair assumption that is definitely a fair assumption but i'll take it one step further which is what led to the genesis of the idea that's now jumpstart which is you mentioned two figures right 500 bucks or a thousand bucks for a small business owner even that sometimes is too much because they're using, you know, commoditized IT, they're using G Suite, which is, you know, anywhere between 15 to 20 bucks per user per month, or they're using, you know, Microsoft 365, which is roughly about, you know, the same cost. For them to start shelling out 500, 600, or, you know, $1,000 a month is also expensive. And you know what, that is the largest demographic of businesses in the country. How are we addressing their cybersecurity needs? Because I know I'm going off on a slight tangent, but just bear with me. The number one group of businesses that gets attacked are not the large businesses. Those are the ones that get attacked on a daily basis and they have the defenses in place to to protect themselves. It's the low-hanging fruit. When, when we talk about hacker mindset, it's it's we often say, right, they go for the lowest hanging fruit and that is small businesses. How are they being secured? How are they building the defenses that they need? And unfortunately, that model where we say we'll charge you 500 bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month doesn't work for them. So how do you address that market? And that is where the idea of Jumpstart came from, is to be able to take the essence of this bespoke consulting and offer it as a self-serve experience on a platform. And that is what Jumpstart Security does. It gives you that advisory those basic tools and guidance that a small business owner would need to be able to go and address their security needs. Because they don't need to build Fort Knox. They just need to make sure that their Google or Microsoft's configured properly, they've set up backup, and that their staff has the relevant awareness and education on being able to address the kind of threats that they'd see in the workplace. And finally, having the necessary paperwork in place, whether they're policies or processes or whatever, to show that they do think about cybersecurity as a larger business would. And you know what? That's actually been one of the biggest learnings for us in running Jumpstart is that the policy piece is quite critical because this is what helps smaller businesses win tenders and bids and what have you. So that's that's the whole genesis of the idea behind Jumpstart. Make consulting 
almost a self-service experience for the smaller end of town. And that's what this business is all about. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think I was thinking about that years ago. I'm like, why hasn't anyone done this? Because like, I mean, there are a few people doing it, but maybe not the same sort of level that you're doing it at. Uh, because I think it's the reality of it. Like you don't need full, full blown stuff at that level. Uh, and it, it is low hanging fruit. It's easy, right? You can just write a script, ping a few people. Some people will, you know, you'll compromise them. It's it's very easy to do that. And it's not very time consuming. It's not like this whole planned out thing. It, it's it's quite a simple task to execute and it, and it works because we see it work every day. So I'd like to just switch gears for a second and talk about what, when you and I spoke originally about, you know, what sort of angles should we cover? You mentioned around how customers unintentionally misuse your product, so your SaaS product or whatever it may be. So, so talk to me a little bit more about this because this is interesting and I haven't covered this before and I'm mm-hmm. keen to hear your thoughts on this. Okay, so this has been a this has been a challenge that has come up with a number of my customers, uh, you know, in this life and previous working lives, where they are a platform provider, SaaS platform or or software provider, and they often end up finding ways that their customers misuse their product by way of assigning in, inappropriate permissions, um, sharing data with other you know stakeholders that 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 customer has within that platform and coming back to the software vendor and saying it's your fault it's because of your insecure or unsecured or badly thought out platform that i have had this you know data breach like i'll give you an example one of one of my one of my uh, customers in the past ran a platform where they would bring suppliers and customers together and suppliers could bid on projects that the customer would you know define a scope of work for now one of the key requirements of their platform was that the customer has to assign specific permissions to the supplier and if they don't do that then the system treats the supplier as a customer account as well and that the supplier can see pricing for all the other bids that are coming in the system as well that is a completely unintended you know use case but it has it had the potential of you know creating a big a bit of an issue so this this whole topic of you know unintentional misuse of the product is actually sits in my opinion it actually sits between product design and cybersecurity so are you thinking of cybersecurity use cases when you're designing features for your product and you know to take that one step further as a consequence that company which makes that platform has brought cybersecurity as one of their core uh, you know design principles when they're designing new features for their product and it has made active efforts in that space to minimize the instances where customers could misuse their product and then sort of come back and blame it on them so that's this is this is quite an interesting thing to see because not only was that just one company an example i've seen multiple examples of this companies i haven't even worked with but you know i know uh have saas offerings that they they that they are often grappling with this issue we don't want people misusing the product so just to go back in you know when you're designing a product or you know new feature and you've got product design with security would this be covered? I mean, if they're doing like sec DevOps, for example, would this be covered then? Or do you still think they can do the whole process, they built the product, and it still doesn't matter at the end of the day? 
I think saying that Seg DevOps should cover this is kind of uh, it's it's a loaded assumption because when you talk about you know Seg DevOps or DevSecOps or rugged DevOps, whatever you want to call it, um, oh my god, it's it's yeah. it's it's looking at building out you know some kind of uh, some kind of a um, assumption here that the testing process will catch this. So either the people who are QA testing my product, they will they will they they will figure this out, or um, you know we'll 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 sort this problem out when it goes from build to you know testing. However, I think that's 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 assuming that you know uh, your QA process has security use cases in mind and it has all possible security use cases as well. But why wouldn't you want to correct these problems? Like there's. Uh, something someone once said to me. Uh, so, I'm sure you know him as well, Matthew Strawn, who now runs Volkis. Uh, he said something to me way back when we were both at Content, which has stuck with me all these years. So shout out to Matt. Um, it's better to correct security flaws on paper than in code, and I really subscribe to that view. So, why wouldn't you want to include security thinking in your product design rather than let it? translate from poorly defined you know uh, poorly defined specs into code and then into testing and then go and have to fix that issue whereas security thinking might even allow you to build new features on top of what you're actually thinking to build so devsecops can solve it yes theoretically but it's a naive expectation for your devsecops pipe your qa process at the end of that pipe to pick up these kind of use cases or edge cases for you know unintentional misuse Totally agree with you. So, okay, let me get this right in my head. You, you've you got the right intention. You're a company. You do sec DevOps, DevSecOps, whatever you want to call it. Yep. It's all fine. You are, you're trying to do your best in terms of integrating security into the design stage. You've done the testing. Yep, seems to check out. Product's live. It's all good. You've got customers that are using it. Then all of a sudden pops up the unintentional misuse of your product. Then what happens? What do you do? How do you respond? How do you fix it? So, so this, so this aspect of it actually takes me to another thing that I'm very passionate about, which is, um, our, uh, which is called VDP or you know vulnerability disclosure programs or responsible disclosure of vulnerabilities. A lot of people, when they hear you know VDPs and things like that, automatically start thinking about oh, we need to go down the path of bug bounties. No, you don't need to go down the path of bug bounties. It's actually, a, it's actually a bit of a journey that you go on. The first thing is you need to find a way that your customers can report bugs in your product. A lot of organizations, when they launch new platforms, they usually have a feedback. They usually have a feedback mechanism that they use, but that's only saying, asking questions, limited questions like, you know, this is, do you like this feature? Would, what would you change about this feature? But having the ability to support the feedback that's coming in. In a previous life, when I was building a particular app, we had switched on a feedback feature and we got so much feedback that we were completely inundated with having to be able to deal with it. And that turns off your users because if they're not being heard, then why would they bother giving you feedback in the first place? So when this does happen, the most important thing, in my opinion, is having that is having a responsive and structured program for receiving feedback from your users and being able to support that with your dev team 
and your product team who are able to then receive that information, analyze it, and then be able to come up with the remediation items that they need to do. So those are really important factors that organizations that have SaaS products and are dealing with unintentional misuse of product, you know, edge cases, they should have these things in place. Mm, so true. Uh, I could just imagine the type of feedback. Was it feedback, not necessarily from a security uh, product front or more like, oh, I don't like the color of the button? Was it was it all types of things happening? No, it was actually usability feedback, which was fantastic. So the, there, there was no issue with the quality of feedback we were receiving. There were you know, bringing up issues that, you know, the, the product team had honest, honestly not considered. Usability issues, displaying of information-related issues, all of it genuine, genuinely contributing to improving the overall product. But from the ability to support the feedback that's coming in, you need to have processes in place as well, right? So, and then in addition to this, sometimes even your users may not be able to catch something, but this is where we start veering into, you know, having the ability to receive technical vulnerability information from a freelancer who may have looked at your site and said, hey, there's something wrong with it. You don't have to build out elaborate vulnerability disclosure programs. You could simply have a two-line policy saying, if you see a bug, let us know. Don't test these parts of our of our platform because you're also then automatically setting the narrative as well, right? That don't test these parts of our application. And if someone does, you are actually saying, hey, we've published this on our website. Don't be don't be you know spending your time testing this because um, we see this as a hostile act, and then also having a process in place saying that if you send us feedback, we'll typically take five days to respond to you, and if it is something that was of importance that you flagged, we'll give you recognition. You are automatically setting the tone for receiving that feedback from a technical perspective. From the user side of things, having a mechanism to record that feedback and being able to go back to the user. Quite often what happens is when you when you you know submit feedback, they say, thank you for giving us your feedback. And that's the last you hear of it. And then maybe or maybe not, you'll see what you'd raised come up in the next product release. But actively communicating that these are issues that happen would be would be great. This is just one part of the misuse product, the uh, misuse of product piece. The other part is user education and awareness. So Let's talk about this example that I gave. The features that they that they had created would not allow someone to uh, exploit a vulnerability in the program, but it was unintentional misuse by assigning someone the wrong permissions. So the product's working fine. The product's recognizing that a particular user needs to be assigned certain rights. It assigned them those rights, but the intention was uh, was you know, misinformed or ill-informed, which led to that disclosure incident. So consequently, what, what needs to happen is as a, as a vendor of a platform, you need to invest time and energy into an education program for your platform so that your users know exactly how to use it in the right way. Because that is also where a lot of these issues come up. I mean, you can't keep coding for changes. So going back to what you said about the DevSecOps piece, the other aspect is, DevSecOps can't deal with everything, especially if, you know, and I'm going to be blunt, if the user is acting stupid. So how do you remove the chances of stupidity occurring? You do it by education and information. So organizations that have platforms should be thinking about actively educating their users on how to best use the product. Mm, 
Interesting. Okay, so what's coming up in my mind as you're speaking is, so just so hypothetically, someone's got a product, there's capability to provide feedback. Thank you, Saeem. Goes into a black hole and you never hear from me ever again. One, do you think that is genuine and people are just doing that to say, oh, thanks for your feedback, Saeem, and then doing nothing? Or do you think people are being proactive in saying, we've taken it on board? Obviously, you know, if it's something like, you can't fix because it's a personal preference rather than a functionality. Would you say that people are doing the best that they can or do you think it's some people are, you know, putting it there so people don't sort of get upset that there is no feedback um, just to put people's minds at ease, so to speak? Ultimately, when you build a software platform, you're building it for users, right? So if you're not listening to your users, then what are you doing? So I don't think any SaaS platform or software uh, platform that has a feedback function puts it there purely for cosmetic reasons. Now, what does happen, and this is not a malicious thing, or this is not a bad thing, it's just a thing that happens, is organizations generally don't think beyond, actually, when I say generally, I'll take that one back. Organizations, some organizations don't think of communicating beyond the initial receipt of feedback some 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 platforms i know have you know public feature boards that you can add features and they can get voted on and then the organization prioritizes those features but in app feedback you should be able to say we've looked at the feature we realize it's a personal preference whilst we'd love to you know take on every single feedback and and add it into our next release this one unfortunately gets a bit of a lower priority. However, to circumvent this, have you thought about maybe doing X, which could which could be the fix to their issue without you know really doing many changes to the app. But then it comes back to the education piece, right? Maybe the reason why a personal preference is constantly coming up is because the user themselves are not educated on how to use the application in the way it's intended. So that's also something to consider. I mean, it's not, the user is not ultimately always right but neither is the software platform provider. So you need to find a way to bridge that and come to a middle ground. And the way that you do that is by having clear communication and education on how to use the platform and actively listening to feedback from users, which you know has an impact. Like when I talk about my own platform, the first five users that came on the platform, the first five companies that came on the Jumpstart platform gave a plethora of feedback. And some of it was personal preference. I don't like this color. So we take it all on board and we think about why are they saying they don't like this color? And was it is it personal preference or is it because it's a usability issue? So you have to look at all of the feedback that's coming in and then come to an informed decision on whether it's someone doesn't like green because that's our primary color. Uh, they like blue more than green. Or maybe they've had a personal experience with the color green and they don't like it. There's not much we can do about that. But what we can do is if a certain color makes something very difficult to view or read or understand that's active you know feedback on that that we should take on and address the second thing is how do you use your platform one of our users initial users was actually start, was actually sharing the the their username and password with a couple of other people in the company and we actually said that's not how you use the product you need to go and add a user here but that was learning for us that we didn't do a good job in educating the user on how they should 
how they should add more users to the you know to their account. So these are the this is a classic like my own my own platform is an example of this, right? So you need to spend time in educating people to use the product in the right way, and then if that way is not right, you need to go change that way and then educate them again. So it is nonstop. So true. So okay. Just say you, you know, you're not just placating people, you are doing the right thing by taking their feedback, but you're getting thousands of notifications because everyone loves your product, but you know, everyone's got an opinion, everyone has a voice, whether it's security related functionality or pure design. How do you sort of categorize that? Because I mean, what's important to a security person is security. What's important to UI UX person is their stuff's going to be front of mind. How do you manage that process, though, internally? Because there's going to be everyone sort of sitting there saying, well, why are things more important than yours? But how do you communicate, yes, these things are all, are all important, but to do it methodically where we're all being heard, but of course certain things need to take preference. How would you sort of approach that so people aren't overwhelmed by 50,000 um, you know, notifications from feedback? Um, well, I I would first start off by saying that it's not quite often that you get a lot of feedback from from users. At least that's been my experience. I mean, I'm dying for feedback. Uh, so if I ever am in a position where I'm getting, you know, 50,000 50, different instances of feedback, I'd be, uh, my initial reaction would be that of, you know, pleasant surprise, like, whoa, people are actually responding. However, uh, the second part of what you asked, it really comes down to what your app experience is going to be. So if someone says that they want multi-factor authentication uh, to happen in a certain way. And security raises its hand and says, well, yes, it should happen in this way. There should be, uh, uh, there should be a token and, 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 it, and it should come via SMS and it should work like this. But then from a security perspective, is, is, is multi-factor really the requirement or is a secure experience the requirement? So one of the things that's you know uh, becoming more increasingly adopted now is passwordless authentication, is you know user uh, user behavior analytics, and there are a lot of technologies that are available that are quite inexpensive to implement. So is the issue two-factor authentication here, or is the issue the secure experience? And that is what ultimately should guide the choice of which features get prioritized over the other. So if our users are getting constantly annoyed that they have to, you know, first set up a, a token generation app, like, you know, Authenticator or something, and then every time they log in, they have to put in their uh, token. And we also have to understand the psychology of your customer. If your customer, if your end user customer is non-technical, the smoother the login experience, the better. So there are alternatives to multi-factor authentication now, which you can explore. If it is a secure, if it is a customer profile that expects two-factor authentication for whatever reason, then it's actually contributing to your user experience, right? To the application experience. So, like to sum up the long-winded answer I just gave you, it depends on how it impacts the application and user experience. If it benefits, it's a priority. If it doesn't benefit, it's a lower priority. Gotcha. I ask this because I do give feedback on a lot of products that I use because, mm. you know, everyone wants feedback and I get that. 50,000 is probably more like Facebook, right? But mm. anyway, this company, they do like, you know, process payments and stuff like that. Long story short, 
there was no multi-factor or two-factor. And I said, like, this is a concern for me. I'm obviously a skew person. Like, I don't like this. Um, you know, I didn't sort of dictate it has to be multi-factor authentication. I just sort of said, like, you know, an extra bit of security I think would be good considering it's a payments platform. Mm-hmm. One, went into a black hole, never heard. So then what I did as a, as a user is I left. Went I went to a competitor of theirs that could solve that problem. So that's probably why I'm bringing that up because mm-hmm. you don't address it, you don't respond. You, even if you don't sort of fix it because it is some cosmetic, I don't like red, I like purple, whatever, you still need to actually give that response to, we really considered your feedback, thank you very much. Um, you know, these are the reasons why or whatever it may be because as a result of that company not doing this process, they've lost me as a customer. And there's probably another 50 other thousand people out there perhaps that are thinking the same as me or they may not be, it might be something else. So it's more around the mindset of going back to the user as to you're not addressing this properly doesn't mean you have to fix it, but at least do something to acknowledge that thank you very much for your feedback uh, because you know, they, I'm probably never going to go back to that platform ever again because of my experience with how everything happened. That's just an example of what may become a problem for people that aren't doing this process at all or properly. Look, I, I completely agree. And ultimately, it really boils down to that experience, right? And you had a bad one. So you're not going back to that platform again now, as you said. So if if you have the ability to define a communications process with your client then you should definitely do it because it it it, it comes down to whether or not you're going to stay fresh in that customer in, in in the customer's mind that's also important how do you how do you retain you know brand stickiness how do you retain uh the uh, you know how do you retain uh front of mind or you know share of mind in that in in that in that customer because if you're just another app they use and it's not a very good experience, you'll probably go to the back of the mind and you need to be front of mind. So having a communication process is very, very important. Um, acknowledging stuff like, thanks for your feedback, it's gone here. And you don't even have to actively go back and communicate with them. This is where having you know a public feature roadmap or um, you know, a, a a public listing like a Trello board or something could be that you know what if you if you want to see how your how your request is tracking you can you can take a look at it here, and there they might look at other features and say hey my idea is getting a lot of traction because there are other people asking for the same thing so, and then if you communicate with your customers saying that look we've heard you, you know fifty percent of the feedback that we got was around this one feature let's say you know secure login experience so we are now implementing this it should be uh released in the next in the next release which is going to be a month from now or two months from now or whatever that would give you as a as a customer of the product a bit more confidence that okay these are these this platform is actually listening to what i have to say and they're thinking about security as well yeah i've seen that i mean obviously marcom's agency we use a lot of tools so some of the companies that we do like leverage their, their tools for you can see that there's Trello board. And the good thing about being either an early adopter or making friends with the founder is you get to, yeah, they actually, you're part of almost their, their product design team because they, you're, you're a user. They, they almost mold, uh, you know, some of your decisions and your feedback into what they're going to do. And I think that that's an advantage. So I think that, you know, just because you give feedback doesn't mean that people aren't on the other end. They're not listening because I've seen it happen. 
you know, even people on my team have been on calls with, with founders or their, their dev team to get their feedback, to improve the experience, to get a better product, which has worked for them um, because it's like cool, you know, almost like free UAT in, in a sense. So I think that there, there's definitely a plus side to that. So how... How do you think companies, because I mean, we've spoken a lot about this, like the some of the things that people do wrong, um, the benefits of it. How do you believe companies can better prepare to ensure that their customers are not misusing their product? Like I said, it comes down to, so we've talked about the uh, one part of it, which is the, you know, capturing the uh, feedback, but it's also a couple of other things. Education is something I touched on. So you need to have a, a great onboarding experience. You need to have a great user activation experience. So when your user jumps on your platform, you give them all the tools that they would need and all the information that they would need to be able to understand how to use your platform in the most quickest way possible. And then it's not just an initial one-off touch point. It's, it's a continuous touch point. A lot of companies tend to go down the marketing side of this by saying, did you know that you could use our you know, uh, our platform to do this. And that's more of a, you know, thinly veiled attempt to upsell what they do. But if you do it in the true sense of, of, of the pursuit, which is these are the common use cases that our customers use this platform for. And this is how you can train yourself or familiarize yourself with settings to enable you to execute on those use cases quickly and, you know, in a secure way. That's, that's important. The third is also about how is your applications team monitoring the platform and being able to pick up potential activity and behaviors of users that could warrant a security issue. So that's another thing which, which the company I gave the original example of the, the bidding platform, they implemented user monitoring, which alerted them to when users would leave accounts, you know, when, when, when users wouldn't log into accounts or they'd set up accounts which weren't logged into for their suppliers for a long time. I think they set a, a 30 day monitoring period that any accounts not logged into for 30 days, they would then flag that with their, with their customers saying, Hey, did you know you've got all these accounts on the platform that haven't been logged into for the last 30 days? All of these things start contributing towards reducing the likelihood of a unintentional misuse of the product, in my opinion. So gathering sort of the intelligence, like the data and then, I mean, you're not going to have all of the answers, but deriving some insight from that data, like why mm -hmm. have 50 people not logged in this month? Oh, well, you know, 50 people also gave us feedback on the one thing that we didn't do. So, I mean, it's not as easy as that, but you get you get my drift that if you look at the intelligence of what you've got, that's a really great idea. You can actually then potentially start to reverse engineer that and use it to retain your users mm -hmm. or to potentially bring them back or you know, to, to maybe even email them to say, you know, we've noticed you haven't been on our platform, but, you know, we, you know, to put you some feedback. So there's all these things to consider. Would you say that not enough people are doing this? And if so, like, why are they not doing it? Because, I mean, I guess it does seem like a very laborious task and it's not a one-size-fits-all, everyone is different. But I'm just keen to sort of gauge, like, where's people's head at with this? I think... Organizations are doing this, quite a number of platforms, in my opinion. So it's not something which is very new or very niche or very edge, so to speak. However, a large amount of platforms, in my opinion, 
don't prioritize this enough because there's this preconceived notion, and this is also my opinion, so take it with a pinch of salt, if you will, that adding security features would hamper or you know disadvantage the user experience, which I don't think is the case. In fact, more and more, security is becoming a way that organizations are differentiating themselves. I'm going to take a really wild tangent here, but I'll, I'll talk about this. So before the current iPhone ad around iPhone 13, do you remember uh, iPhone had a very large campaign around, uh, around something? Oh my gosh, same. All right, I mean, no, no, like I'm sorry, I'm building it up. I'm building it up. No, oh, so okay, I'm like, yeah. uh... so the last big campaign that you know they ran for the iPhone was privacy, right? Privacy. That's iPhone. I think that was the catch line. And the thing is, a lot of brands are now understanding that they need to establish trust. They need to establish security. So a lot of a lot of platforms are now starting to talk about security. Are starting to talk about security as a cornerstone of what they do in their in their app so whether you're using a crm whether you're using a marketing uh, an email marketing platform all of these concerns around security are coming to the forefront so it's not as if organizations are just simply not paying attention they are paying attention but the better ones are doing a really good job the others are i guess starting to catch up but they should pay attention to this in my opinion and that's the operative word. So it's like, yeah, people are doing it, but are they doing enough of it? And the answer probably is still no. Mm. So how can so if someone's listening to this, they've got they've got a product, they've sort of they've loved everything that you've spoken about today, which I have too, and they're like, mm, that's a really good way to position like security as a cornerstone. So how how would you sort of have that discussion with your with your product team or your dev team or whatever to sort of really feature that as like something that they should be focusing on, which potentially could draw in more, more, more users. Like we, you know, because people do care about this stuff. People are asking about this stuff because it's more ubiquitous now than it has been before. How do you sort of start that discussion? Okay. So you start that discussion outside of the product team. You actually start that discussion at a company level. And what every platform should be doing is drafting a cybersecurity statement. So a cybersecurity statement simply outlines what, that company does to reduce the risk of security incidents. And it doesn't have to be any kind of marketing blabber, just the honest truth. So for example, how do you receive information? How do you store information? How do you educate your staff? And how do you educate your customers on cyber threats and good data security habits and practices? How often do you test your cybersecurity efforts? And basically creating a narrative that would make me as a potential customer or a customer a little more informed on the security approach that your company takes. And this is stuff that you'd put on your marketing website, not necessarily just not, not in the app. We've not even gotten to the app yet. Once you have a statement around that, then you start thinking about how do you embed what you've talked about in your cybersecurity statement into your product design. So when you're product manager or your product team are sitting down and thinking about where should the product go next, everything that you think about should be rooted in asking this fundamental question is, does it have an impact on my customer's data security? Does it have an impact on our application's availability? Does this feature have an impact on our on our you know, system's 
integrity or the integrity of the systems. I'm referring to the to the security triad here. These are small steps, and they may sound generic, and they may sound a bit blasé. But when you start thinking about this, and you start implementing this into your into your into the way that you think as a, as a team, as an organization, that's when you really start thinking about security. So just saying that we'll do a pen test once this is over is definitely not going to cut the mustard. You have to think about what are my products contributing to towards security? What are my products contributing to towards giving my users the assurance that what they are logging into, what they're using to transact their data with is actually a secure platform? And a secure platform doesn't necessarily mean that you add on more security features per se. It's also about the approach that you take. Going on yeah. a slight going on a slight segue here, if you don't need to collect certain information on your platform, then don't. If you can get away with a small piece of information about someone's visit to your website in terms of cookies and what have you, make do with that. It's also about making informed choices on what you as a as a company represent in terms of digital transparency as well, on what you do with the data that you receive. So it's not just a pure security play or a pure security thing, uh, a thought process that's required. It's also a thought process around privacy, in my opinion. Mm, no, so true. I love that. I love all the things that you're saying because I think it's something that I've, I've spoken to organizations before that are not security organizations and like you know like how do we position ourselves that we care about security and trust and you know people are starting to have those conversations because it does matter because people are getting more equipped with what else what does this all mean to them as a consumer as a customer people are starting to understand that this stuff matters so i think that this is a really good way to to ignite some of those discussions uh, with your company, with your team, to to think about you know security as a cornerstone. So, really, really appreciate it, Sai. I think it's been a really great discussion. As I mentioned, like I haven't had someone speak about this before, and I think it's a really good way to further enhance your your product. So, if people perhaps have a question for you that I didn't ask you today, how can I go about getting in contact with you? It's quite simple. Um, they can reach me via email. So my email address, uh, you know, I'll it's it's syme at jumpstart.security. So there's no .com.au or .com. It's just syme, that's S-A-A-I-M, at jumpstart.security. If they have a question, um, you know, have a look at the platform as well. If you're a small business and you want to start thinking about security as well, um, you know, please feel free to share my email address on the link when 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 you when you publish this podcast. So, yeah, send us an email. Happy to help. Awesome. Wow. Thanks so much, Sayin. Thanks very much for your time, and I can't wait to get you back on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.